Enjoy. So to anyone who's studied and reads Christian doctrinal history, of all things, I know, it's pretty clear that over about 2,000 years that doctrine has changed in some places. Not the Word of God. The Word of God is just solid as. I like the Word of God. All right, some solid theology for sure. Those things don't change. The way of salvation doesn't change. But some church doctrine moves around. I'll give you an example. Millennialism. Millennialism is when the church believes, some parts of the church believe that Jesus will return for a period of a thousand years. It's called millennialism. Now, interestingly, up until about 500 AD, a stack of early church writers believed that. In fact, it is early church doctrine. But at around 500 AD, the sentiment towards having a solid 1,000 years began to change. And a doctrine called amillennialism began to develop. Uh, what happens is there's, um, like I said, you can find this in early church literature, but a good example is a gentleman by the name of Arrhenius. No, uh, so to, uh, Arrhenius? Tertullian. Arrhenius. There's a whole stack of them, all right? But I want to very quickly bring up um, Arrhenius because he's one of my favorite writers. So he's around the 200 AD. But he wrote a lot about millennialism, and he believed very solidly that there was a, a thousand years of Christ's reign, of um, the reign of Christ. But what would happen, because there was no printers back then. You can imagine that? No printers back in around 200 AD. <laughs> so they would have to rewrite any kind of documents, letters, or books every time something got destroyed or just simply got old. All right? So you have to go right back, and pre-500 AD, you've got all these writings from Arrhenius talking about millennialism, and then 500 AD, after 500 AD, the things that have been rewritten, it's missing. Because people were like, no, nah, we don't really like that anymore, so they just removed it. That's okay, it's not a salvation issue, but it is kind of disappointing, eh? It just means we have to study a little bit more when we want to discover any kind of doctrine or have a firm belief in something. Um, so I'm actually going to be drawing this morning a fair bit from the Word of God. Yeah, I love that book. Yeah. <laughs> and some early teachers, early church teachers, okay? Because I just think if you're going to formulate ideas, especially about elephants in the room, don't you want to know what the really, really early church thought about it? I did. So today is going to be super nerdy, just to warn you, okay? Um, but I really do want to get as close to the original beliefs as possible. So may I encourage you lovely people to listen today, maybe leave behind your current doctrine, and wait till the end before you want to stone me to death with your Christian love. <laughs> Honestly, about 20 years ago, I reached a point where I thought, I'm going to start again. That's what happened in my head. 
I'm like, I'm going to start again with all my doctrine. And with the um, advent of knowledge increasing, technology, you know, we have a better access to documents and beliefs and, you know, just general information. So with that, the title of today's sermon message is Rapture. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to go through... We're going to go through three points today. I'm going to warn you what they are first, okay, so that you know. Point number one will be, what is it? Point number two will be rapture or return or removal. Number three will be, who knows? Now, I personally believe it's beneficial to uh, study the book of Revelation in a um, small study group, especially about the rapture. Uh, But since it's such a big elephant in the room, yeah, we are going to address it today and hopefully bring some clarity about what it is and what it isn't so we can all make some educated doctrines. How's that? Is that a bit better? Mm, Yeah. Uh, And honestly, some of the doctrines that are out there about the rapture and end times are crazy. And you can disprove within less than a minute. But I found in my walk with God and in church, some people love their doctrine more than they love the Word of God. It's like the Pharisees and you know, the Sadducees and Jesus is literally saying, but this is what it says. And they're like, yeah, but we've got this thing over here. And he's like, bring it back. All right, so... So with that, let's do point one. Point one, what is it? Firstly, it is ancient church doctrine. There's this myth going around that it was invented around the 1830s by a guy by the name of John Nelson Darby. I've seen this pop up quite a few times. They're like, oh yeah, it was an idea by John Darby in the 1830s. I'm like, we have the internet now, you actually can check that. Because the early church often used the concept of rapture and even used the word rapture in Latin. The word is rapturo or can be rapio, depends on um, the context. But they used the word rapture in several of their teachings. Okay, for example, there's a complete set of writings called the book, the book, oh, sorry, the five books against Marcion. It, you know, it's basically believed to be have written around 200 AD, 217 AD. Uh, maybe by a guy by the name of Tertullian. It's a little bit um, anonymous, but most people do believe it was written by a guy by the name of Tertullian, AD 200-ish. Regardless, it just shows what the early church believed. All right. So it's actually there's actually a poem in these books, um, which I'm going to show you. And this is what it says. It says, I shall read it. Remember, Latin to early English. So it says, Noble Elijah was wrapped. The uh, Latin there is raptura or rapio. But anyway, Noble Elijah was wrapped, raptured, who hath not tasted yet death's Jews, which means he's not dead, (laughs) since to the orb, Latin word is Orbum, since to the orb he is to come again. 
which basically means he was raptured so he could come back to the earth, right? <laughs> okay. And in chariots raised aloft was born to paradise's hall. In normal English, it says Elijah was raptured in a chariot. He didn't die because he had to come back to earth one day. That's nice, hey? If only they'd said that. Well, may I bring your attention to the word orb, as in Latin orbum. It's almost like the early church thought the world was round. <laughs> anyway. I didn't write it. <laughs> I'm not here to discuss that rabbit hole. Okay, moving on. Anyway, around 250 AD, there was another one, Cyprian. He also used the word rapture, this is 250 AD, um, in reference to Paul. It says, it's not up here, but it says, even after his rapture to the third heaven and paradise, that's in 2 Corinthians 12, 2 to 4, where Paul describes himself as going to the third heaven. So early church was very comfortable with the word rapture. It is not a new concept. It is an early church concept. Get this? It is from earth's dimension to a heavenly dimension in every example. And it is someone who is alive. Yeah, it is not a death event. Interesting, hey? And it is found in other scripture. It's not just one verse. It's really weird. Hapazo, which is the Greek, is mentioned at least 10 times. I was looking through the amount of times that Hapazo is mentioned in the New Testament. It's like heaps. All right? So here's an example. Matthew 11, verse 12. I think it's a good example of Hapazo. Because um, Hapazo is the Greek, which then gets translated into the Latin, rapuro or rapturo. Or, yeah. And then from that, it gets translated into English as rapture. All right? So Hapazo, that's the word we're looking for. Matthew 11, verse 12, it says this, And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. The last part of that verse, take it by force, is one Greek word, hapazo, which gets translated into rapuro and then rapture. So you could literally say, and the violent are rapturous. Take it by force. Because hapaso means to see something forcefully. It's not just a, everybody up. It's a sudden, forceful seizing. I like it. Suddenly thieved. Okay. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4.17 is the one that most people turn to when they're thinking about rapture. And it says this, Then we, which are alive and remain, shall be hapaso, raptured up, caught up, suddenly, forcefully seized together with, him, uh, with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. So what is the rapture? It is an early church doctrine. It is a biblical concept. And it is being suddenly seized. How good is that? I like that. All right, point two. Rapture or return or removal. 
Now, for the next point, <laughs> I'd really like for you to pay attention to the verses uh, that we're going to read in context. And then I'll show you what the early church believed about these particular points and what this particular chapter means, all right? Um, because if you don't like what I have to say, then you can just blame the early church. <laughs> I mean, maybe they were wrong. Maybe. 20 for this, let's go to Matthew 24, verse 30. So I'm going to read this passage first, then I'm going to go back into the verses. All right, so I want to read it first, then we'll go back. We're going to read from Matthew 24, verse 30. It says this, And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Verse 31, And he shall send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Verse 30, we're going to skip down to verse 36. All right, because those, the verses in between are a dialogue about those first two. Verse 36 says, But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Verse 37, But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Verse 38, For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the, son, the coming of the Son of Man be. Verse 40, then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Verse 42. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. Verse 43, which I don't, may or may not be up there. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come. He would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Let's go back up to the very first verse in this. Um, about there shall appear. So 24 verse 30. It says, And then there shall appear the sign of the Son of the Man in heaven, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. You're going to find that in Revelation chapter 1 verse 7. It's almost the exact same verse about the world going, uh-oh, this is the guy we pierced. This is, not a, this is not a good thing. And it says they mourn. The Interesting, the Greek word there for mourn, it means to cut. Not just cut yourselves, but it can also be cut in rebellion. It's very interesting. Let's move on. Verse 31. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather his elect from thee where? Four winds, and from where? One end of heaven to the other. Gathering his elect sounds very rapture-y, doesn't it? So let me ask two questions then. What's missing from that verse? The word earth. He says he collects them from where? Four ends, the four winds, four ends of heaven. 
Now, some people can argue, they're like, but John, the four winds, that might include earth. Sure, let's go with that. So what he's doing is he's collecting the elect from the heavenly realm. If this is a rapture verse, where is he rapturing them to? Well, John, he's rapturing those people in heaven to heaven. You mean like slightly to the left? <laughs> Just blows me away that people use that verse as a rapture verse. Anyway, because verses 30 to 31 isn't a rapture verse, it's a return and removal verse. It's proof. Let me show you the proof of this. It's in the next verses, verse 36. But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Oh, I can't wait to tell you how beautiful this verse is. Sorry. People use this verse and they don't even know the history behind it. Oh, sorry. For those who have studied your Jewish Galilean wedding, you know exactly what this verse means. I'm hoping I've got time at the end to go through it. If if I don't, please look it up. Sorry. Sorry. But of that day, no one knows the hour. Sorry, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, but the Father only. Verse 37. Thank you, Jesus. But... But as in the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Do you know what the word but means? It's not a physical anatomy thing, no. (laughs) It means alternatively, that there's an exception. So he starts with, no one knows the day or the hour. And then he goes, but, but, like, We are all destined for an eternity in darkness and separation from God. But, but God made a way. Things are impossible, but with Christ, they're possible. We sang about that all morning. How do we forget the word but? Next time someone shows up to you and says, oh yeah, no one knows the day or the hour, look him in the eye and goes, But! (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But! We'll continue. Because here's the but! For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know the flood and did not know until the flood came. Who, uh, yeah, and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Firstly, who did not know the flood was coming? Well, no one knew. It actually says in Genesis 6, he tells Noah, I'm going to flood the place. He uses the word flood water. So is this verse... Or are these verses about Noah? No. They're about people who did not know, which is the wicked. Yeah. 
For as in the days before the flood, they, that's the wicked ones, they were eating and marrying and drinking and giving a marriage because they did not know until the flood came and took them all away. Who was taken away? The wicked. Continue the verse, the very next verse. Then two men will be in the field. One will be what? Taken away. And the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken away. The other left. Who still thinks these two verses are about a rapture? That's why we have to read things in context. This is about a return and a removal. All right. I'm not just saying this. Actually, we'll continue. Let's get to the butt part. Verse 42. Watch therefore. Because Jesus is saying they don't know. But watch. Watch therefore. For you do not know what hour that your Lord is coming. But know this. If the master of the house had known, how would he know? By watching. If the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Now, why would Jesus say watch if it was pointless? You've got to remember the but. So another way of saying this is nobody knows, so watch The wicked will never know because they're not watching. They're just living life. Because right now, you don't know when the thief will come. But you will if you keep watching. This is um, actually the early church and Paul agree with what what I'm saying right here. This is a return to remove. So let's do some early church stuff, which I really like. Let's start with Arrhenius. I told you I like him. All right, Arrhenius, 200 AD, to around 200 AD. It's just before that, probably around 180 AD, okay? So this is what he says. Let him be taken away that he behold not the glory of God. He's talking about the wicked who aren't beholding the glory of God. He's like, no, these people need to be taken away. And these things are done, he says. God will remove men far away, and those that are left shall multiply in the earth. Now, Irenaeus was very confident that a bunch of super wicked people above the age of accountability were removed from the earth, return removal. And those who were under the age of accountability were left to rebuild the place for the millennial reign, the 1,000 years where Messiah will reign. Told you he was a millennialist, yeah. Um, there is a massive difference between rapture, return, and removal. For the eschatologists there who are listening, writing notes, oh, if you want notes, I can just send you the notes. Also, I've thrown beautiful Ella Shaw under the bus. You can also ask her, and I will send the notes through to you as well. So for the eschatologists, I strongly recommend, I don't have time to get into this part, but I strongly recommend you do some study on the month of Elul, which most likely explains these verses that I'm talking about. And the period of Jesus' return with his saints, the 144,000 on Mount Zion, and it also explains the disparity between 1,260 days and 1,290 days. You will know what I mean if you are one of these eschatology nerds. (laughs) 
All right. Anyway, so not just Arrhenius, the other, other people, for example. Um, yeah, so we can move on from that. Yes, all right. Good job, John. Move on with your notes. This is taking too long. Okay, so let's talk about then the early church and their thoughts about the rapture. Let's start with Arrhenius again, pre-200 AD. This is what he says. And therefore, when in the end the church shall be suddenly caught up from this, it is said there shall be tribulation such has not been since the beginning, neither shall be. So he believed that it was a massive take, a rapture event, pretty much caused the cataclysmic tribulation. Does he mean great tribulation or regular tribulation? I'm just going to leave that up to you. Again, Cyprian, this is what he says. Remember, this is around 200 to 250 AD. It says, Do you not give God thanks? Do you not congratulate yourself that by an early departure you are taken away and delivered from the shipwrecks and disasters that are imminent? Let us greet the day which assigns each of us to his own home, which snatches us hence. Fourth century, Ephraim of Nisibis. Um, this could be a pseudo one, which means it could be somebody writing on his behalf, but let's get there. Early church doctrine still. For all the saints and elect of God are gathered prior to the tribulation that is to come and are taken to the Lord, lest they see the confusion that is to overwhelm the world because of our sins. Again, great tribulation or regular tribulation? Or maybe even just the last day? I'm just going to leave that up to you. Man, there's another one. One more, because I've got to get through this. Victorious of, what's his name? Petrovium. That's a hard one to say. Okay, so anyways, he was a bishop uh, around 300 AD. This is what he writes. I like this, this idea. He writes, And the heaven withdrew as a scroll that is rolled up. This is in uh, Revelation 6, verse 14. Um, it says, for the heavens to be rolled up, that is, the church shall be taken away. His concept was that 6 verse 14 wasn't a tangible rolling up of the actual universe and skies, that it was the church being taken up. He believed that heaven withdrew as a scroll was about the saints and the church being removed. Now, it's very interesting that, um, I'll just continue what he says here. It says, this is um, Victorinus. Victorinus, my gosh. Like it says, uh, for the wrath of God, I like this part, always strikes the obstinate people with seven plagues. That is perfectly, that is perfectly, as it is said in Leviticus, and these shall be in the last time when the church shall have gone out of the midst. All right? So he was very, very sure that the church was going to be removed before the seventh seal was broken. Early church doctrine. He's also a believer that there's only seven plagues designed for the wicked, God-haters. Seven plagues. How many plagues were there in Egypt, everybody? Ten. So why did he say seven? Might get there later. Anyway, so early church believed that at least, at least God was going to snatch up the church before things turned super bad. That's the early church doctrine on that. All right, point number three. Who knows? <laughs> okay, because everyone likes to ask me, John, 
when do you think it's going to happen? Like, who knows? But I believe genuinely we will know. Paul agrees. Actually, you know why I believe that we will know? It's because Jesus is the good thief. We even have a song about that. He's the good thief. This is what Paul says, 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 2. It says, For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Awesome. People like to use that verse. But then they skip the next one. <laughs> and then the one after that. Uh, verse, this is verse 3, 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 3. It says, um, For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape, but... Oh, there's that but word again. <laughs> yeah. But God. Oh, my whole life revolves around but God. But God, all right? But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so this day should overtake you as a thief. So whether you are pre-trib, mid-trib, oh my goodness, was it post-trib, amillennialist, preterist, there's a huge list. One thing I'm really sure of, biblically and also from the early church, is just watch. Just watch. But people are like, but John, nobody knows. Okay, let's go through this first part then, because I do have time, praise God. Matthew 24, verse 36, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. So is Paul contradicting Jesus? If you think, there are some people who really don't like the writings of Paul. But you need to read Second Peter, where Peter says, oh, if you don't like Paul, then you're crazy. <laughs> so people are like, I love Peter's writings. I'm like, good, he called you crazy. <laughs> you have to love Paul's writings. He's amazing. It sounds here that he's contradicting Jesus. Because Paul's like, yeah, you'll know. Just keep watching. Why would then would Jesus say, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels. What is he talking about? Because we've just discussed, and it's really obvious, that no one knew. No one knew by faith. No one knew. He's building an ark and he's watching. hundred years. That's a lot of faith. Some of, some of us don't have faith for a day sometimes. You know, we have a hard week or a hard month. We lose our faith. Imagine building an ark for a hundred years while people mocked you and reviled you and told you you were crazy. But by faith he knew. So, why would Jesus say this? Especially when just a few verses later he says, but know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched. Why would Jesus have said that? That's the but. If you keep telling people, oh, no one's ever going to know the day or the hour, then what you're saying is that nobody's watching. And I pray that isn't true for you. Jesus said it's worth watching. He even said in Luke 21 verse 36, he says, watch and pray that you might escape all these things. So we have Jesus saying, watch, you'll know. 
we have Paul saying, watch, you'll know. And one of my favorite verses in the Old Testament to do with end times. Because let's face it, I've just used New Testament. And some of you are shocked already. You're like, why doesn't John talk about the Old Testament like he does? Well, I like the context of the whole Bible, so let's go there. Amos 3 verse 7, it says this, Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. Knowing is in the context of the whole Bible. No one knows the day or the hour? Yeah, I'll give you that. But we will. So when Jesus says, no one knows the day or the hour, and then says, but, those, that verse there is actually linked with John 14, verse 3. John 14, verse 3 says this. It says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So, why is Jesus saying, no one knows the day or the hour? Why is he saying, I need to go away, prepare a place for you? I'm so glad I've got time to say this. It's because those are a betrothal line. It is what a young Jewish man would say to the woman he wants to marry. It's a Galilean betrothal custom. When a young man desired to marry a young woman in ancient Galilee, the first step would be to establish a marriage contract. Now, the most important part of this contract was the bride price. Yeah. That is the price the young man was willing to pay for her. Jesus was willing to pay everything. So You can see why I got a bit emotional before. Because when I see no one knows the day or the hour, two things happen. Firstly, people focus on the no one knows and they forget the but. And secondly, they don't realize this is Jesus saying, I love you. I'm marrying you. You're mine. So in the first part is the contract. So if the bride accepted the price, they would then pour a glass of wine. And the young woman, if she drank the wine, it was an acceptance of the contract. Um, you know how in modern times somehow, you know, that they pay for the male? Ancient times, it was the bride who was worth the price. Because that's how God sees you, his bride. So, they would say, if, if, if she chooses, Pastor Graham, oh, I haven't got time to get into this. Look through scripture. You know, it's, it's always the, the male who was like, I want to marry you. And then they would ask her, will you go with him? She chose. Because all are called, but the chosen choose. That's a good message, Pastor Gray, honestly. So she chooses. She's like, yes, all right, I'm good for this. Let's drink some wine. I'm like, Sweet. How good is that? Okay. So they were poor glass, should take it, acceptance because the chosen choose. At this point, the young man and young woman were officially betrothed, but they were not yet consummated. Um, you can see this in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 2, where Paul says, I've betrothed you to one husband 
to present you a pure virgin to Christ. Musicians, you can come up now if you like. So they've made the contract. The chosen have chosen. <laughs> but this is the weird part. Then they wouldn't see each other for one to two years. Yes. So they would make this contract, drink wine, yay, let's get married. And then, be, and then he would say this, I have to go, and I'm going to go prepare a place for you. But the groom would send multiple presents over the two years. How good is that? Yeah, so they just send each other presents, just like the Holy Spirit. See, Jesus went away, and he says, I need to go so that I can send you the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. So he sends us gifts. So during that time, also while the, while the groom's going crazy building the house for the couple to live in, the bride would go and do what they call a mikvah, which is a baptism. So she would be baptized with the full acknowledgement that I belong to him. Then I'd go and prepare a place for you. Jesus said that in John 14, verse 3. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. So once everything has been done, okay, so this is ancient Galilee. Once the bridegroom, uh, bridegroom had done all the preparations, he could only get his bride after his father approved it. So he's building, and the father's like, yeah, nice place. Okay, now you can go get that girl. So whenever somebody would ask, in like I'm going to put it a little modern English, if someone says, hey, when's the wedding? This is what they would say. This is what the groom would say. Because he's just building, and he doesn't know when the father's going to let him go to go get the bride. This is how they would answer. He would answer, I have no idea, right? So when's the wedding? Uh, I have no idea. In fact, nobody knows the day or the hour, not even the angels, but dad knows. That is literally the wording they would use. It was a custom to say, no one knows, only the angels and my dad. Like, not even the angels, just my dad. So when Jesus said that to his Jewish audience, they were immediately aware that this was a proposal. He's like, I go to prepare a place for you. They're like, huh, wow, this is weird. No one knows the day or the hour. No one knows, not even the angels, only my father. And everyone around is like, is this guy trying to marry us? It's like, yes, because you're my bride. You're the one that I've come for. <sighs> You're the one that I'm going to return for. Interestingly, and kind of really weirdly, the bridegroom would typically come for his bride in the middle of the night. There's even a saying back at, you know, about it. You can find this in Galilean wedding literature. And it was, he comes as a thief in the night. It comes from Galilean wedding, wedding culture. But when they showed up, they would come with trumpets blasting. You'd hate to live in a neighborhood where there was a wedding every weekend, eh? But you know what the bride was doing while waiting for that one to two years 
not just the bride, would be the bride, the bride's uh, bridesmaids and sisters that begin the oil ready and, and trimming the wicks because they didn't know but they knew it was happening and when they heard the trumpet but they also knew because of gifts they knew it was getting close because they were watching they were like huh, I noticed that um, the husband-to-be has nearly finished that house of yours yes, it's going to be soon it's going to be real soon. So I'm watching for him. I'm watching. This is the gross part, sorry, children. Upon returning to his father's house of property, he goes and gets, gets the young lass, gets the girl. The bridegroom would take his bride to the wedding chamber where they would spend seven days together. Interestingly, on the first night, the bridegroom's friend would wait outside the door of the wedding chamber. And when the marriage was consummated, the bridegroom would tell his friend through the door, hey, we're one now. He would then announce it to the rest of the gathering and they would celebrate for the entire seven days. At the end of the seven days, the groom would bring out his wife and introduce her to the community. So when, John? Well, you, to be honest, you can't possibly know when the rapture, eternal removal is going to occur, especially if you get the length of the tribulation wrong. This is for the eschatologists. All right? Just think, there's 10 plagues. Why are only seven mentioned in the book of Revelation? Why does Jesus say that the whole tribulation period is 10 days? In Revelation 2, verse 10. If it's only seven days in Daniel chapter 9. What is Yom Teruel? What is Elul? That's all I'm going to focus on for that part. Because let's get back to the really super important part. That he doesn't just love you. This blew me away. He doesn't just love you. He loves his relationship with you. My dog loves me. But loving the relationship with, something is, with someone is totally different for me. It's next level. Because I love coffee. But I don't love my relationship with the coffee. God knew so long ago the things that you would battle with, your struggles, the hardships, the grief. So you're not a surprise to Him. Your mistakes are not a surprise to Him. He doesn't just love you. He loves His whole relationship with you. He made a marriage proposal to us I accepted that contract and I remember that contract every time we do communion and then we get the little thing that represents the wine, the bread it represents the sacrifice, the price that Jesus paid for us and the wine, the wine represents the marriage contract but it shouldn't just be about Jesus dying and forgiving our sins that little wine that we take is 
He's coming back for us. He's coming back. You know, all people want to be loved. There's a really deep void in this community and worldwide for love because we do not know or understand or truly believe because David says it. He says, I see my sins always before me, which means I see everything I've ever done wrong and it's kind of blocking my view from the love of God. I'm just hard to see it. And I'm sure God loves me, but why would he love our relationship when all I do is mess it up? But we're all part of this incredible love story. Like the Word of God, the Bible, it's not a book of do's and don'ts. They're in there. But from the beginning right through the end is the greatest love story ever. I mean, I get it. Some, there's some tough men and women, but there's some tough boys who think, oh, I don't need to be loved. <laughs> yes, you do. We have some hard care, hardcore boys in this church. <laughs> like some of you have no idea. <laughs> but they know. Because in your heart you know. In your heart you know that you're part of a love story. And it, something's missing. Something's missing. You're thinking, well, something's missing. Man, God can't wait. God can't wait for us to finally see him. I said this to Rachel yesterday. God can't wait for us to see him. He has planned it out for an eternity. Patience. Woo, patience. But he just can't wait.